Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. As I'm recording this, battles are raging in Tripoli between forces aligned with the UN-backed government and a renegade general named Khalifa Haftar. Haftar and his allied militias had controlled eastern parts of the country, including the city of Benghazi. But in recent weeks, he has marched his troops westward towards the capital Tripoli in an effort to oust Libya's internationally recognized government. Several hundred people have been killed in this fighting, thousands have been displaced, and the situation is now very much on the precipice of descending into a full-blown civil war. On the line with me to discuss what is happening in Libya and why we need to be paying attention to this escalating crisis is Mary Fitzgerald. She is a researcher who has been focusing on Libya since 2011, and in this conversation, she breaks down the complex dynamics of this conflict in ways that I found very understandable. The episode is an excellent explainer on this currently unfolding crisis in Libya. She explains who Khalifa Haftar is and how geopolitics are very much driving events on the ground in Libya right now. We kick off discussing a rather unusual turn of events. On April 19th, I and every other reporter who subscribes to the White House email list received a note in our inboxes that was a White House summary of a phone call between Donald Trump and Khalifa Haftar. And in that summary, the president seemed to throw his support behind the renegade general. Thus, reversed, as far as we can tell, U.S. policy on Libya, which was to support the U.N.-backed government. Now, there's a big question looming over what side the U.S. actually supports in this ongoing conflict. If you are listening to this episode contemporaneously, you'll notice that I don't have an advertiser for this episode. You won't hear an ad because I've been spending most of my time preparing interviews and delivering you great content and less time on the business side of things. And this is sort of an unfortunate hazard of running an independent podcast basically by myself, but it also demonstrates the importance, I think, of listener support. So if you rely on this show to bring you stories from around the world that you otherwise would have missed, I would so appreciate your support. Please become a premium subscriber to the podcast, and when you do, you will unlock a host of rewards, including bonus episodes and access to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service. If you are, are not aware of what that is, this is an aid and development and global news clip service to which Big organizations like USAID and the UK House of Commons and many others subscribe. Uh, but since I run it, I can make it available to people who support the show with a recurring monthly contribution via Patreon. So if you support the show, if you become a premium subscriber, you can unlock access to this daily morning news clips service. I'll post a link to the Patreon platform in the description field of the podcast. That's where you can make your contribution. Thank you in advance. Thank you for supporting the show. For those of you who are already premium subscribers, thank you for making this specific episode possible. 
And now here is my conversation with Mary Fitzgerald. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Okay, so so just to kick off, I, I would love to get your take on this seemingly bizarre turn of events um, from here in the United States last Friday when uh, the White House released a statement seemingly in support of Haftar, which seemed to reverse U.S. position, which was to support the U.N.-backed government. How do you make sense of, of what that statement from the White House meant? Well, there is uh, there has been a lot of speculation over uh, the the exact uh, circumstances and context um, of this statement. The statement referred to a conversation that Trump had with uh, Khalifa Haftar, that is the commander who launched an offensive uh, on Tripoli's seat of the UN backed UN recognized government um, on April fourth, an offensive uh, that has triggered fighting that up to now has. Uh, claimed about 250 lives and displaced 30,000 uh, people. Um, so Haftar has shown since April 4th, since launching that offensive, has shown no indication of backing down. In fact, he has told a number of people, including UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, that he's determined to press on with uh, with this offensive. So with that in the background, um, people were quite surprised by this turn of events last week and, and the news of this call um, between Trump and Haftar because because according to the White House statement on the call, it, you know, many people saw this almost as an endorsement um, of Haftar. Uh, yeah, the language the was like flowery and, and glowing of, of Haftar. Right. And, and uh, praising him for his role in, in uh, fighting terrorism, as the statement put it, and also um, securing Libya's oil infrastructure. It went on to talk about Trump and Haftar's shared vision, that they discussed their shared vision on a, a democratic uh, future for Libya. Um, I have to say that that element of it uh, did raise eyebrows in Libya, given that Haftar is on record um, in media interviews as saying Libya is not ready for democracy, something he's repeated to several diplomats over the years as well. Um, so it, it really uh, put a can among the pigeons, if you like. Um, and media interviews since with Fayez Saraj, the head of the so-called Government of National Accord, that UN-backed government in, in Tripoli, have shown that I think he is feeling a little um, nervous uh, following this and wondering what exactly um, is happening in terms of U.S. policy. What because was it was only like well, wasn't only like a month ago or less than that that you know Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was expressing his support for that UN-backed government. Indeed, and uh, and calling for um, a stop to the fighting, and in those initial statements, calling on the various factions to return to their previously held positions. The State Department uh, released uh, a readout of a meeting that uh, Pompeo had with the British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, um, after that statement from the White House, that again kind of echoed what Pompeo had said before, and was certainly about, um, uh, you know, the, the, about returning to um, some kind of dialogue. 
dog. But we know that a few days after the Trump after call at the UN Security Council, um, the US declined to support a draft resolution which had been drafted uh, by the UK calling for a ceasefire. So right now there's a lot of uh, questions over what exactly US policy, how it stands now and how it may play out in the days and weeks to come. Do you have a sense of what um, inspired or caused or motivated Trump to release that statement and, and sort of reverse US positions so sharply and suddenly? There is a uh, little uh, information that would explain the the kind of context and, and background to the call. We do know that um, uh, Haftar had a conversation with John Bolton um, at uh, at one point in recent weeks as well. So there has been communication. Um, there is some speculation in Libya that uh, this uh, could have come out of uh, let's just let's just say unconventional channels, uh, alternative channels. And what's interesting here is that. Um, quite a few pro-Haftar Libyans had, during the presidential election campaign, openly expressed hope that Trump uh, would would become U.S. president. Um, you know, at the time, many of them were saying, oh, I, I think he'll be our kind of guy. He will uh, back Haftar. He's going to have similar views to ours in terms of um, the, the, the problem in Libya and ways of solving that problem. Um, of course, many of those uh, attitudes changed with the with the travel ban because Libya was one, was one of the countries affected. Um, but there was still that kind of sense that you know, if Trump um, gets on board, he's he's our guy. Um, so, can we maybe take a step back and can you explain who is uh, Khalifa Haftar? Where did he come from, and uh, how did he sort of make it this this close to sort of overtaking Tripoli? Well, Haftar is a figure um, with a, a decidedly checkered history in the eyes of, of many Libyans. Um, he was a young military officer when um, he took part in the 1969 military coup that brought uh, Muammar Gaddafi to power. He later fell out uh, with Gaddafi following his role in uh, Libya's disastrous war in Chad. And after that, he drifted in opposition circles um, for many years. He lived in the U.S. for over 20 years. And then he pitched up um, in Libya in the first months of the 2011 uprising against Gaddafi. I was actually in Benghazi um, when Haftar arrived, and I remember the consternation it caused because it was as if his reputation very much preceded him in terms of a mercurial, difficult uh, personality who insisted he had to have um, a senior role, if not the role. So at that time, he was involved in, in jockeying with uh, Abdel Fattah Yunus, a, a general who had defected early on in the uprising, over who would actually be uh, the main commander of, of the rebel forces. Haftar didn't get what he wanted in terms of positions during the 2011 uprising, and he didn't get a position in the post-Gaddafi dispensation either. So he basically spent the years between 2011 and uh, 2000, February 2014 uh, traveling around Libya. He was holding meetings. It wasn't really clear um, what he was up to, and people didn't take him particularly seriously. And that was the same when in February 2014, he um, basically appeared on TV and uh, and uh, announced or called for the suspension of the government at the time and said that the army would save the country. The then Prime Minister Ali Zaydan um, accused Haftar of um, attempting a coup. 
um, and an arrest warrant was was issued for him. Um, but he basically disappeared and popped up again in May 2014 when he announced what he called Operation Dignity or Karama in Arabic, which he presented as a war on terrorism, a war uh, aimed at rooting out extremist groups, including the UN-designated Ansar al-Sharia um, in Benghazi and eastern Libya. But a key um, part of the civil conflict that Libya fell into in 2014 um, was this uh, fear of Haftar's ambitions. Um, this idea um, that many had um, in, in the months of uh, early 2014, and certainly after he launched that Operation Benghazi, a fear that um, he was merely using this um, campaign against extremism as a pretext. It was a vehicle to build up a base and he, towards uh, his ultimate ambition, which was to become military ruler of Libya. I met Haftar um, a few weeks into the launch of that operation um, in, in Benghazi. I met him in early June 2014. And he grew particularly testy um, uh, during our meeting when I told him that I had been struck by the number of Libyans I had met who supported the idea of his operation, who wanted a proper army and police in, in Libya. But they had a lot of reservations about him, a lot of misgivings and a lot of questions about what his real motive um, actually was. And how did he and express his, uh, his misgivings with you? Well, he, because at the time, the narrative uh, Haftar very much wanted to present was that he was um, selflessly coming out of retirement, because he is uh, 75, actually, this year, to um, take up this uh, this cause of fighting terrorism um, in, in Benghazi, in eastern Libya. So he didn't like being challenged on uh, these questions uh, that Libyans had about his uh, ultimate um, ambitions. He was saying, however, he said, um, if the Libyan people ask me um, to to be a president or prime minister at some point in the future, then I would consider that. So it showed that, you know, he was willing to accept that that was something that was on his mind. So that uh, fear of Haftar's ambitions, um, a fear of Haftar, uh, this idea that Haftar was seeking to impose himself as military ruler of Libya was a key driver in the civil conflict that started in summer 2014 and remains um, a key driver today. Um, the Haftar conundrum, as, as I call it, has been a key obstacle to the UN um, dialogue process that began in late 2014, which attempted to, to stem that gathering conflict. Uh, so I, I'd like to talk about that um, political process that the UN and the UN Special Envoy has tried to to broker for a while. But uh, first, I just want to be clear with something. So for the last several years now, Haftar has essentially controlled large swaths of eastern Libya, uh, Benghazi and, and surrounding provinces. Well, I think, you know, we have to, uh, first of all, say that control is um, mm. always a relative term in, in Libya. Um, Haftar has a, a measure of control in eastern Libya, but you have to understand also the the reality of, of his forces. Um, Haftar leads um, what uh, self-style forces that he has named um, the, the, the Libyan National Army, or LNA. Interestingly, in Arabic, the name, the precise uh, translation from Arabic is the Libyan Arab um, National Army. 
which is interesting because that explicitly Arab uh, reference um, has made many within Libya's non-Arab minorities uh, very uneasy um, mm. about the force and it has, it has affected um, their support for it and has actually fueled resistance and, and uh, opposition to it. So what Haftar calls his LNA um, is it, it, it includes a military nucleus. Um, and it's important, actually, we have to take a step back here and talk about um, the the army in Libya as it existed pre-2011 and post-2011. And in fact, one of the biggest challenges Libya has faced post-2011 is security challenges arising from the fact that um, by the time uh, the uprising started against Gaddafi in February 2011, Gaddafi, who would come to power through a military coup, was so fearful that um, a coup would be attempted against him that over the 42 years he was in power, he essentially hollowed out the Libyan um, army, instead building up battalions that were headed by his sons so they would be um, loyal. So by the time the uprising against him started, the Libyan army was a shell of itself. Um, and what happened to it post-2011 was that it essentially fell apart. Haftar managed to bring some of those military officers from the old uh, Gaddafi era army together to form his LNA. But there was also a substantial number of those former military officers who did not join and actually have been strongly opposed to Haftar's LNA since 2014. Mm -hmm. So the LNA is essentially a military nucleus surrounded by fighting forces that include uh, tribal uh, militias, hardline um, Salafist fighters, Saudi-inspired Salafist uh, uh, fighters who support Haftar, foreign mercenaries. Several UN reports have detailed uh, Haftar's use of Sudanese rebels, for example. And then one commander um, who's wanted by the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes. So that is the LNA. Um, it's an address on a fragile, fluid um, coalition of interests in eastern Libya where Haftar's stronghold is. Um, so again, going back to this point about control is a relative term in, in Libya, and everything rests on very fluid alliances mm -hmm. that can shift um, according to how certain factions and individuals say their, see their interests at a particular time. So uh, ahead of this um, assault uh, that the LNA has launched on Tripoli, uh, the UN had been sort of seeking to kind of broker um, a political accord between uh, Haftar and uh, the, the central or the UN-backed government in Tripoli. Can you talk a little bit about what that process looked like? I mean, I know that the UN Secretary General rather recently even went to Libya to try to lend his support to this process. Well, indeed, and uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, was actually in Tripoli on April 4th, the day Haftar uh, launched his offensive, um, to try and, and give a fresh boost um, to that uh, UN process. So, you know, if, if people were in any doubt as to Haftar's contempt for that UN process, and he has tried to um, undermine it at pretty much every turn since it began in late 2014, the fact he chose to launch the offensive the day Guterres was visiting Tripoli, um, you know, s said a lot in terms of its um, audacity. The offensive actually came at a at a moment of relative um, optimism in some quarters um, in terms of next steps. 
Um, the UN was due to convene what it presented as a national conference, uh, which would have in included uh, hundreds of Libyans, uh, political figures, uh, figures from armed groups, but also civil society, aimed at trying to kind of forge some kind of consensus on the path ahead, political um, and, and otherwise, with the idea that Libya could possibly have um, national elections um, presidential and parliamentary at some point within the next year. That national conference, which was supposed to take place the week after Haftar launched his offensive, has now been postponed indefinitely. And the UN process is essentially in, in tatters. Um, the UN special envoy to, to Libya, uh, Hassan Salame, um, said just last week to the BBC, he said what Haftar has undertaken in Tripoli looks more like a coup um, than anything else, um, referring to the fact that not only had Haftar launched this military offensive, but his um, his camp in eastern Libya have also claimed to have issued um, arrest warrants uh, for the head of the UN-backed government and his colleagues um, in, in Tripoli. Yeah. So the UN process, uh, which was already uh, faltering, Everybody was was um, pinning their hopes, if you like, in this national conference, which has now been po postponed indefinitely. I think now the key question is, what does the wreckage of um, this situation that is ongoing and the fighting continues, what will the wreckage look like in terms of picking up the pieces of any kind of political process if and when the fighting finishes? And on the fighting itself, from what I've read, and I'd love your your take on this, you know, Haftar seems to have um, overestimated his chances of success, uh, and that um, you know forces in Tripoli would sort of uh, um, disappear, dissipate uh, upon the arrival of his forces. But the fighting in, seemed to have been much more intense than anticipated, and his sort of strategic gains uh, were less robust than. Uh, he might have anticipated. Is that sort of a fair summary of, of sort of the military side of things? Yes, indeed. So Haftar appears to have miscalculated on two counts. Number one, he overestimated his ability to essentially flip um, armed groups in Tripoli and in Western Libya more generally to his side. This was a strategy that worked pretty well for him in Eastern Libya in recent years, but also earlier this year, Haftar pushed into Southern Libya, where he managed to uh, form alliances, handed out and through handing out largesse, etc., managed to flip different armed groups to his side. He clearly thought this would work in Tripoli too. And in, in fact, he had been, not only had he been vowing to march in Tripoli since 2014, but he had been saying over the last year that when he gets to Tripoli, it will be, he'll take Tripoli without bloodshed. So he miscalculated in terms of the flipping of armed groups because actually uh, very few um, have flipped and certainly none of the key powerful armed groups um, in, in Tripoli. He also... Um, underestimated the swiftness and scale of the counter-mobilization against him. The counter-mobilization against him in Western Libya has been one of the biggest mobilizations of armed groups uh, we've seen since 2011. And what I find interesting is that the rhetoric in some quarters in Western Libya is reminiscent um, in, in several ways of, of 2011 while the rhetoric in Haftar's camp in certain quarters is reminiscent of what we heard in the early weeks of his operation in Benghazi in 2014, when many of his supporters were saying this is going to be over in weeks, when in fact mm. it lasted four years. 
So I, I wanted to ask you about the geopolitics of, of this. Um, how significant important is the backing of Saudi Arabia and UAE of Haftar to his um, political and, and military operations? Well, Haftar's um, external support has been key from the beginning, since 2014. And, you know, it, it's it's uh, clear that Haftar is is really in many ways as powerful as his external backers have made him since then. Egypt has backed mm. so, Haftar. So to a significant degree then, Egypt, yeah. Yes. So Egypt has backed him since 2014 um, because essentially it, uh, Cairo felt that Haftar was the best bet in terms of securing um, the, its border with, with Libya. Um, the UAE supported Haftar um, in, 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 largely because of this kind of narrative that the Emiratis pushed of um, this idea of a battle against um, the Muslim Brotherhood and other political uh, Islam currents throughout the, the region. And Haftar's narrative very much kind of dovetailed uh, with that. And both Egypt and the UAE have, according to several UN panel of experts reports, repeatedly violated the arms embargo on Libya um, in their support of, of Haftar and are, are clearly continuing to support him now with, with this offensive, even though there are indications that in Cairo, some in Cairo were a little more uneasy about the way this offensive has um, unfolded. What is interesting is the um, Saudi connection here in that a few weeks before Haftar launched his Tripoli offensive, he visited Riyadh, um, where he was accorded pretty much um, the protocol of a, of a visiting head of state. He met with King Salman, he met uh, with, uh, with MBS, and, um, he, you know, the, the very much the, the kind of optics and also the statements uh, surrounding that visit were that they completely endorsed um, his vision of, of what was happening in Libya and, uh, and how to, to tackle it. Um, we've also seen reports over the last week. There was one in, in the Wall Street Journal citing Saudi officials saying that they had offered Haftar tens of millions um, in support of his operation and uh, claiming that he had accepted uh, that offer. The other interesting element of this is that within um, the first 24 hours of Haftar's offensive on Tripoli, um, many of us noticed that we saw this avalanche of um, tweets coming from Saudi or Saudi-linked Twitter accounts um, referring to Libya, referring to Haftar, referring to the offensive. And that was unprecedented. Um, we've never seen such a Saudi pylon in terms of what's happening um, in, in Libya. Um, so that all of that combined uh, suggests that the that Riyadh is heavily invested um, in what has been happening since uh, since April 4th. So I guess how concerned are you that this fighting around Tripoli will accelerate um, into a regional proxy war that ends up in like a total bloodbath like Yemen? Well, that is uh, that is a real concern right now, um, because given the failure of the UN Security Council um, to uh, basically agree on a resolution merely calling for a ceasefire, um, and you know it wasn't just the the US that declined to support that resolution, um, it was also Russia, which is the other interesting um, player in this. Uh, Russia has um, engaged with Haftar, Haftar at different points in in recent years, um, while in 
insisting that it is engaging with a range of players across the Libyan political spectrum. And of course, like all the other um, external actors, um, insisting that it uh, supports the UN-backed government. But there are a lot of questions right now in terms of how Moscow uh, may see the current situation and whether it uh, may weigh in more heavily in favor of Haftar, depending on how um, the situation plays out uh, plays out on the ground. But what we're um, facing right now in, in, in Tripoli is given that Haftar um, hasn't um, achieved the momentum he was hoping, he was clearly hoping to uh, achieve very early on, he's suffered a number of, of setbacks. Given the size of that counter-mobilization against him, there is a very real fear of a protracted conflict in the Libyan capital, um, a city that is home to between 1.5 and 2 million people, a city that is also home to the two pillars of the admittedly shaky Libyan state, that is the National Oil Corporation and the Central Bank of Libya, two key um, elements of the Libyan state, which, you know, thanks to Gaddafi is a classic rentier state and totally oil dependent. So it's in no one's interest for a protracted battle for control of Tripoli that could last months, you know, possibly um, years. There's also a concern that what we would see in Tripoli and Western Libya is further fragmentation amongst armed groups. So basically armed groups dividing uh, amongst themselves in terms of which particular camp or faction um, they may support. And that makes, of course, the prospects of, of bringing the fighting to an end even more remote. Mm. So I guess finally, uh, to conclude, what um, indicators will you be looking at in the coming you know, days, weeks and months that might suggest to you how the situation will evolve, what direction uh, this conflict might take? Well, I think it's extremely concerning right now that uh, we don't have an agreement agreement uh, for call for ceasefire at the Security Council. Uh, similarly, um, there is little agreement in, in Europe um, uh, amongst the EU member states um, in, in terms of forging some kind of a more robust collective uh, response. It's been very timid uh, so far uh, from Europe, despite the fact that this is essentially a gathering storm on Europe's southern um, neighbourhood and one that can affect um, a range of uh, challenges Europe already faces from Libya, including migration flows, security, um, etc. But because France um, has supported uh, Haftar and uh, in the past, including militarily in eastern Libya, uh, France has been uh, trying to water down more uh, robust response uh, collectively at uh, EU level. So given that situation and given that there seems to be um, little possibility of a stronger response internationally um, to basically just, first of all, um, bring a, a halt to the fighting. Um, it looks pretty grim in terms of uh, the scenario. It seems as if the uh, the UN envoy Hassan Salame has has stepped back. He has said over the last week that there, the prospects of any kind of negotiation right now are, are, are pretty much zero. Um, uh, Fayez Siraj, the head of the GNA in Tripoli, um, has been giving interviews where it, it very much seems like he and his uh, colleagues feel abandoned um, by the internationals who who once um, uh, swore support to them. So Haftar, of course, will be 
watching all of this and uh, and you know seeing those dynamics, seeing those shifts, and seeing obviously opportunity in this. And I think that the the Trump the conversation he had with Trump last week, the way that was presented uh, by the White House afterwards, definitely Hafter and his camp have seized on that as somehow an endorsement of of what uh, they're doing. What Hafter and his uh, people are not hearing right now is very much uh, censure or opprobrium in terms of what he's, he's been doing. Uh, well, Mary, thank you so much for your time and for your analysis. This was very helpful, timely, and yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, um, I'm not optimistic about the situation, unfortunately. It really seems like the, the forces are aligning to accelerate this, this crisis even further. This uh, th this is how it appears right now, and and you know the 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 thing is that Libya is not an island. Um, it has the uh, it has the possibility of seriously affecting and infecting uh, the dynamic in a range of neighboring countries: Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, Chad to its southern border, Niger. So what happens in Libya tends not to to stay in Libya, and I think that this is something. Um, that various internationals really should be keeping in mind in the days and weeks to come. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. Always a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mary. That was a very helpful explanation of these currently unfolding events in Libya, which you know may be coming to a front page uh, near you soon. This is uh, one of those events, one of those crises that could escalate, I think, very quickly. Uh, as always, please do become a premium subscriber to the show. I so appreciate your support. You literally help me keep the lights on. And by keeping the lights on, I mean pay my host server fees. Thank you. Thank you very much for keeping this podcast operational and helping me do what I do. And if you are considering being a premium subscriber, just go do it. Click that button in the description field of the podcast. You'll get an email from me right away. Thank you, and we'll see you soon. Bye.